But we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 40. This time going through the book of Acts, we're not going to hit every single verse in the book, but we're going to pull out different sections that are going to be meaningful and important to us. So, the title of this message is called Trophies, Three Trophies of Grace. We're going to look at three trophies of grace here in the town of Philippi in the first century. Lord, we ask for your favor as we look into your word today, your, your grace. May your spirit, who is the teacher, come and instruct us. Holy Spirit, move among us freely. Instruct us, instruct our minds, and incline our will, and open up our hearts to the truths here in the Word of God, that we would respond in a God-honoring way. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start off with the same text we originally began our meeting with. It's Ephesians chapter 2, especially verse 7. And in verses 4 to 6, we learn that God has done some wonderful things for us. The Lord has made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And then he raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. But verse 7 tells us why he did it. He says, so that in the ages to come, that's the eternal future ages, he, God, might show or demonstrate, or I like to use the phrase, show off. He, he wants to put on display something. And what is it? The surpassing riches. He's not stingy. It's not just a few riches. It's the surpassing riches, the boundless riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God did all of this for us because he wants to show or demonstrate his grace. And he's going to be doing that in the ages to come. Not just now, but for eternity. We're going to be seeing what God has done in the lives of all of sinners that are saved by his sovereign grace. He's going to show to the, the angels and he's going to show to the rest of his church, triumphant, what he did in our lives. He'll say, take a look at Jerome over there. Let me show you what he used to be and what I did in his life. And he'll take all of his saints, and he's going to do that. So, trophies of grace. That's who we are. When you win a contest, you win a trophy. You like to put it up where you can display it because you're kind of proud of what you did, right? Well, God has got some trophies. He's, he's been victorious in millions of lives. And he's taking those people as trophies, and he sets them up and puts them on display so that we walk through his museum, and we see this one, and we see that one. And we just are blown away by the surpassing riches of the grace of God. We're going to see three trophies of his grace in Philippi. That's the theme of today. So let's pick it up here in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. So Philippi is a Roman colony, meaning it's like a miniature Rome. It's got the same culture as the city of Rome. It's got people that have been set in its city to staff it, to oversee it, to enforce law, just like it was Rome itself. A lot of times they would take retired veteran army officers and they would send them to these various outposts of Rome to colonize them. Well, that's what we have going on here in Philippi, a Roman city. Verse 12 says, From there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, we were st staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. It was on the Sabbath day. Now, do you remember when Paul would go into a new city, what his uh, process of missions always was? What did he do? Yes, he'd start in the synagogue. On the Sabbath day, he'd go to the synagogue. 
they would permit him to stand up and exhort the people. And so he'd preach the gospel. He'd tell them all about Christ and how he was the long-promised Messiah. And he would call for them to come to Christ in repentance and faith. So that was his standard practice. We don't find that happening here. And that's probably because there was no synagogue in Philippi. The, the policy was that you had to have 10 male Jews in a city in order to have a synagogue. If there weren't that many male Jews in a city, there was no synagogue. But there were a few Jews here in Philippi, and they still wanted to meet to pray. So they were meeting down at a riverside. They had a designated spot that they would meet to pray together. Paul heard about this somehow through the grapevine, that there was this meeting spot on the Sabbath. And so he went down there in order to speak to those women, those Jewish women who had assembled. Here we're told it was uh, the synagogue. And then in verse um, 13, it tells us that he began speaking, speaking to the women who had assembled. So he's not street preaching. It doesn't say that he was preaching to the women. He was speaking. This would be more like our witnessing, conversational witnessing. Paul goes down to the riverside. There are some Jewish women there. He starts to talk to them. And he starts to speak to them about the gospel. We know that because in verse 14 it says, the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. And we also know from Acts 16 verse 10 that Paul had a vision and in the vision, a man of Macedonia had said, come over here and help us. And so in verse 10, it says, when we had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. That's how he was going to help these people of Macedonia. He was going to preach the gospel to them. So he comes down here to the riverside. The women are assembled. He begins to speak to them the gospel. Uh, the, the person, let's learn about Lydia a little bit in verse 14. A woman named Lydia. Isn't it interesting that in the vision, it's a man that says, come over and help us. But when Paul gets there, it's actually a woman. Visions are not always supposed to be taken quite literally. <laughs> and we see that in this case. Um, so she's the woman that Paul is especially interested in speaking the, the words of the gospel to. Now, her hometown was Thyatira. Do you notice that in verse 14? She's from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira was a city in Asia. And just previous to this, if you read the first part of Acts 16, we read that the Holy Spirit would not permit them to go into Asia. Wouldn't let them go. But he did permit them to embrace and meet this woman from Asia, this woman, Lydia, who perhaps is going to have an influence back in her hometown later on in her lifetime, the Spirit has his times when he leads us into various avenues of ministry. So she's from Thyatira. Her occupation, we're told here in Acts 16, 14, was she was a seller of purple fabrics. She was a saleswoman, a first century saleswoman. She sold purple fabrics. Now, purple is important because purple was the color of royalty, and purple, purple fabrics were the expensive fabrics because you got this, this purple color from a rare shellfish. It wasn't easy to get. And so in order to purchase these clothes that were dyed purple was, was not an easy thing to do. It was expensive. So she was like the upper line, you know, the, today an, an upper clothing line where these blouses or shirts or whatever, they were sold for thousands of dollars. She, she had this expensive line of clothing these fabrics that she was selling. We also know she was a pretty good salesman or saleswoman because later on, um, she says in verse 15, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. So what could Paul say to that? If he says, no, I'm not going to stay at your house, he's saying, I don't judge you to be faithful. So he's going to insult her if he turns her down. So she's a pretty good saleswoman. <laughs> she knows how to put the pressure on. We see that a little bit here. So she's a seller of purple fabrics. She also seems to be quite wealthy. She seems to be successful in selling. We know that because she has a home large enough to bring in four missionaries to be able to stay in her home. So she's got a large home. 
She's selling purple fabrics, which is the expensive upper crust of the fabric industry. Um, so yeah, she, she's doing well. She's doing well financially. Her religion says she's a worshiper of God. So this either means she was Jewish or it means she's a Jewish proselyte. She could have been a Gentile that was converted to the Jewish faith and so she's called a worshiper of God. But for one, for all intents and purposes, she knows and believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. Now, let's take a look at her conversion. She was listening. Paul was speaking. All these women were listening, but she especially. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. What was the means God used to convert her? The means. The Word. The Word of God that Paul was speaking. So that would have been the Gospel, of course. He, Paul is explaining to her the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But what did the Lord have to do in conjunction with those means in order for her to be converted? He had to open her heart. Yeah. So if he had to open her heart, what does that mean her heart was before? Closed. Closed. The unconverted person's heart is closed. God has to open it up. He's got to pry it open because it is fastened on sin. Like all of us were by nature. We're born into this world with a nature bent towards sin. So our heart is closed around sin and the Lord has to take his mighty fingers and open it up, insert the gospel inside that starts a transformative work on this old heart, makes it brand new, gives it new desires and new inclinations and motivations and passions, and the person becomes a new creature in Jesus Christ. So that's what's happening here with Lydia. All people that are not saved have a closed heart. And the Lord needs to do this work of opening it up. So he takes the gospel that we would minister to somebody, but he has, he's got to do this additional work that we can't do. I can't open somebody's heart, but God can. I can speak the gospel, and then if the Lord is pleased to, he will open up the heart, and those two things coming together produce life. Brand new life in Christ. And that's what takes place here with Lydia. So my question to you this morning is, have you responded to the gospel in faith like Lydia did? Are you a believer? Now, if you did do that, it's because the Lord opened up your heart. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to think about that much, but there was a time when my heart was closed. I can remember that very clearly. Or Basically, I was just not interested. I was disinterested in the things of God. And the Lord did something to make me love Him and His Word and Christ. It was the Lord's work, opening up of the heart. And, and if, if that's happened to you, give God the glory for that. I mean, give Him praise for that. That is a miracle of grace that we should never take for granted. Amen? Now, notice her baptism. When she and her household had been baptized. Now, it just kind of adds it on as a quick addendum to her conversion. It, it appears that immediately, maybe the very same day, she's already by a riverside, right? So it's easy to baptize her. The Lord opens her heart. She believes the gospel, Paul speaks, and she's baptized. And not only her, but her whole household. Every time we read a baptism in the book of Acts, it's done immediately, right? I mean, it's just a, it's just a pattern that we have in scripture. On the day of Pentecost, same day they're converted, they're baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch, same day he believes, he's baptized. Saul, same day that Ananias comes to him, scales fall from his eyes, he's baptized. Cornelius, he hears the word of God, the spirit comes on him, he's baptized immediately. It's just a, a, it's just a biblical New Testament normative practice. We've taken what the Bible describes and we've made it more complicated. Don't you think? Yes. I mean, there are in, in some Christian circles, you might go six months or a year of having to go through classes and sessions and training and stuff in order to get to the point where you're finally deemed worthy enough to be baptized. But the New Testament knows nothing about that. A person repents, believes on Jesus Christ, and they go down to the river. 
and they're baptized. And I think maybe it's time for us to return to New Testament practices. I think it's pretty cool that we, right down here at the clubhouse, we do have a swimming pool and a jacuzzi, and they allow us to do baptisms down there. So if someone were to come to faith on a Sunday, we could go down there the same day if we want to. Notice it was also her household was also baptized, not just Lydia. Now, in the first century, a person's household would include their spouse, their children, their extended family, and even servants. Now, we don't read about Lydia having a husband, so it's probably that she was not married, but she could have had servants. She was probably wealthy enough to have them. Maybe there are some extended family members. Whoever makes up her household was also baptized, leading me to believe they also believed. They also became believers in Christ at the same time. They believed the word spoken of by Paul as well. So here's a word to those of you who are heads of households. Lydia was a head of household. She used her influence to spread the gospel to her family. She, she and her household followed her example in baptism. We're going to also find out about a Philippian jailer later in this chapter. His household followed his example, and his whole household was baptized as well. If you are a head of household, seek to use your influence for Christ on those within your household. Share the gospel with your family. Have a time of prayer. Open up God's word from time to time. Have spiritual discussions. Do whatever you can to influence those within your realm, uh, your influence for Christ. Now notice the fruit of her conversion. Immediately, she says, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay there. And she prevailed upon us. Notice, first of all, she says, um, she urged us, and then she prevailed upon us. <laughs> Two strong words showing how persuasive this woman was. She was not only a good saleswoman, but when it came to her influence for Christ, she really put down, you know, torqued up the screws a little bit and persuaded them to come into her house. So as soon as she's, she, as soon as she's converted and baptized, she, she starts to exercise hospitality to this missionary team. She says, come on, come into my house. I want to take care of you. I want to feed you, give you a place to stay. This will be your base of operations while you're in Philippi. And I think it actually became the center of the church. The church began to meet at her house, which I think we have some indications of that later on in the chapter. So there we go. Our first trophy of grace is a woman named Lydia. Wealthy, saleswoman. She had been throughout different regions of the world at that time, so she had traveled. Different kind of a person. Well, we meet another trophy of grace, secondly, in a demon-possessed servant girl, slave girl, in verses 16 to 18. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, let's just stop there for a minute. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, the place of prayer was by the riverside, they didn't go to the place of prayer once and stop. They kept going back. It became their habit to keep going back to that same spot where Lydia was converted. Now, why would they do that? Well, because this has become sort of a place for them to do evangelism. Also, you've got some brand new believers that need to be taught in the word. So they're still assembling at the same place. And perhaps Lydia is inviting any of her acquaintances. She knows a lot of people because she's a, a saleswoman there in Philippi. She, she's been selling to customers all along. So she's inviting people. I'm, I'm reading between the lines there, but she's probably inviting people that she knows. And she's telling the people what God did for her and how the Lord opened her heart. Paul's speaking the gospel. And other people are starting to come to Christ and they're hearing the word of the gospel. So... This becomes a habit for them to go back to the same place. It's a good strategy once you have made a convert to seek to bring all of the people within that person's social circle into the kingdom, if at all possible. And, and this is a mission strategy. You don't take that person that's been converted out of their social circle and isolate them. You leave them in their social circle and you train them to reach their people you can step back and be sort of an invisible mentor and train them and guide them on how they can reach those people that they know. So anyway, as they're doing this, verse 16 says, a slave girl, the property of some man, having a spirit of divination 
met us. So an evil spirit possessed her. An evil spirit that enabled her to be able to tell fortunes. And this girl met us. She was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. So she was making her masters rich, filthy rich. They were using this girl and exploiting this girl in order to become rich. They had no concern or care for her. The only reason that they purchased her to begin with was to use her as a tool so that they could become wealthy. And that was happening quite well for them. Everything was turning out the way they had planned. So they're exploiting, it sounds a lot like sex trafficking today, just in a different vein. They exploit people to get what you want out of them. Well, this was going on for, for money, for greed. And so this evil spirit is controlling the slave girl, but he is giving her the ability to tell fortunes to different people. And the success rate must have been good enough in order to keep the customers coming in. So we have this happening, this slave girl. Look at her message in verse 17. Following after Paul, she was saying, these men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And it says she kept crying this out. So at a loud pitch. <laughs> I don't know if she was screaming, but she's crying out. These men are the bondservants of the Most High God, and they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Well, what do you think of that message? It's very true. It's absolutely true, isn't it? You think, well, what's the matter with that? Yeah. <laughs> it, this didn't please Paul. It says it annoyed him. It irritated him. And finally, after several days, well, let's, let's just keep reading. Verse 18, she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said, not to the girl, he said to the spirit that was possessing the girl, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. So he didn't beg for the spirit to come out. He didn't plead. He didn't cajole. cajole. He commanded. Jesus Christ as Lord of heaven and earth, has the authority to command spirits. And Paul didn't have that authority within himself, but he used the name of Jesus, not his own name. He used the authority of the name of Jesus Christ, his master, and commanded that spirit to come out, and it obeyed him. And I personally believe that we as believers have the same authority today. If you're in a situation where there's an evil spirit, uh, you can... You can use the name of Jesus Christ as Paul did, and in the name of Jesus Christ, command spirits to come out. Now, there might be differences of opinion on that. That's what I believe. I, Mark 16 said, uh, in my name, they shall cast out demons. And he wasn't speaking just to the apostles, but to the church. So I, I, take, I take comfort from that. If God puts me in a weird situation where I have a demon-possessed person, um, I can do battle with that enemy using the name of Jesus Christ. So she's delivered. The, the spirit comes out at that very moment. I, now, the, the text doesn't tell us this, but I have to believe that not only was she delivered from this evil spirit, but she also became a follower of Jesus and probably made up this new church that was just being formed in its infancy here in Philippi. And the reason I say that is because if I was her and I was controlled and enslaved by an evil spirit, and somebody called on the name of Jesus and commanded the spirit to come out, and he did, and I was free for the first time in my life, I would embrace Jesus Christ. Because the blinders would be gone, and I would see him for who he is, and I would begin become a follower of Jesus. So I'm, a, I'm reading between the lines, but I think probably that's what took place. She also gave her life to Christ, and so now you not only have Lydia and her household, now you've got a demon, formerly demon-possessed slave girl who's been freed and now probably is following Jesus. And before we get to the end of the chapter, there's going to be a whole other household that's going to make up this, this new church there in Philippi. Now, the third individual that becomes a trophy of grace is a jailer. Because he works in a jail, the best way to get to him 
is to send one of God's representatives into the jail. And that's exactly what God does. He allows his servants, Paul and Silas, to be arrested and thrown into jail because he wants to use them to reach this jailer for Christ. A person's conversion is no accident. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. He knows all about us. He knows where we're at. He knows the best way to reach us. And sometimes he will allow us to go through suffering in order to accomplish his purposes, to bring his elect into the kingdom. And that's what I see happening here in the jailer and his household, the third trophy of grace. So let's look at him. Verse 19 says, But when our master saw that their hope of profit was gone, and that's all they wanted this girl for anyway, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is, it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. Now, they were deceitful. These guys didn't care about throwing the city into confusion. They didn't care about that. Uh, they also didn't care that they were proclaiming Jewish customs and talking about Jesus Christ. They, had, they didn't care about that. All they cared about was their pocketbooks. They wanted to become rich. But they're making up these trumped up charges to try to get these guys thrown in prison because they're mad. They're mad that their hope of profit is gone. Verse 22, the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Now, this was against the law because Paul was a Roman citizen. You couldn't, without a trial, you couldn't just start beating somebody with rods and throw them into prison. He knows that because later on in the chapter, he's going to use that to his advantage. So some illegal stuff is taking place at this point. Now, why were Paul and Silas targeted and not Timothy and Luke who were also part of the missionary team at this time. Well, Paul and Silas are Jews. Uh, Luke is a Gentile. Timothy's a half-Jew. He had a, a Jewish mother, I think, and a, a Gentile father. So they targeted the Jews. Their anti-Semitism seemed to be uh, prevalent in this Roman colony here in Philippi. And also Paul and Silas were the chief speakers. They were the ones leading out the expedition. So they fastened on these Jews that were speaking out and they took them and they had them eventually thrown in prison. Okay, verse 24. And he, having the jailer, he, the jailer, having received such a command to guard them securely, threw them into the inner prison, so this was like a dungeon, and fastened their feet in the stocks. This would be an inward cell, no windows, pitch black, unless they had some kind of a candle lit or a torch, which they probably didn't. They threw them into this inner prison, like a dungeon, and making sure that they didn't escape, they fastened their feet in the stocks. And sometimes these stocks were not just an instrument to secure them, but also to torture them because they could lengthen them out and cause you great pain in your legs. Not sure if that's what these stocks were like or not, but this is no, uh, no, no piece of cake going to this inner prison. This is going to be a very difficult, painful evening. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Would you think of that? Midnight, when, when everybody should have been trying to get some sleep, these guys are praying and singing hymns of praise. Now, their backs are bloodied. Their legs are welted. They're, they're in pain. They're in the stocks. They're in like this cell where they can't see in front of their face. I mean, they, they could have had a woe is me pity party that night. But instead, they start to praise God and start to pray to God. We're going to find out that God answered their prayers in just a moment. So I love this example. What do we do when we're cast into our own prison? Do we 
start having a pity party and complaining and griping and get down in the dumps and get depressed? And, or do we just start seeking God and praising God and putting all of our energies towards Him? If we would do that, we would do so much better when we come to our, our, our severe trials that we face. Remember their example when you go through the prison times. Not literal prisons, but figurative prisons. You know what I mean. We go through suffering. Remember how they faced them and how God used them during that time. God wants his men on the inside of the prison because he's got some perishing sinners that he wants to rescue, and he's going to use them to do it. Praise God. So people can inflict a lot of suffering on you, but they can never take away your song. They can never take away prayer. I mean, no matter what they do to you, even if they ripped out your tongue, which some Christians have had happen to them. You read about that in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Terrible suffering that some of God's saints have had to go through. You can still pray in your mind, even if you can't utter a syllable that's intelligible. So prayer is always available and praise is always available. Two great weapons for the child of God. Notice what God does in response. Verse 26, and suddenly there came a great earthquake. Here's God's response to their prayer. He answers, there's a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Well, this is an interesting thing. This prison or this earthquake is so great that it unfastens all of the chains, but yet it doesn't do so much damage that it collapses on top of everybody. I mean, how do you get an earthquake to do just the right amount of damage, but no further damage? Well, only God can do that. <laughs> That's what he's doing here. God has a special purpose in this earthquake. Have you ever played chess? You guys, any chess players? Okay, so you know when you're playing chess, you might be losing, but if somehow you can get the other person's queen and take it away, then you can, it's kind of easy to beat the other opponent. If, if the queen's out of the picture, you've got their most powerful um, piece is gone. It's, it's easy to win. Well, up until now, it seems like Satan's been winning. Right? They're thrown into prison. They're suffering. They're, they're, they're treated without a trial. This is an unjust it seems like Satan has the upper hand, but all of a sudden God takes away the queen. And then he pours out this earthquake that undoes all the, 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 the bonds that are holding them so that they're all loosed. So it's God's move. God's making his move. And so he answers the prayer of his men. Notice the jailer. Verse 27, when the jailer awoke from this earthquake, of course he's been shook in his bed, he wakes up. He saw the prison doors opened. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, in the first century in Roman culture, if you were a jailer and the prisoners escaped, then you, you forfeited your life. That, you, that was the deal you knew it when you took the job. You better not let your prisoners escape because you were going to be killed. Capital punishment. So he figured he would just save himself the shame of having to go through a trial and then being lynched or however they executed people in those days. Uh, he would just draw a sword and kill himself. Just get it done quick and get it over. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, verse 28, saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. It seems like Paul had a real concern for this jailer. He saw him draw his sword. He says, don't do it. We're here. You don't need to kill yourself. Nobody's run away. Nobody's escaped. We're all right here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Isn't that interesting? Uh, just a few hours earlier, he had roughly thrown them into the inner prison. Now he's falling down before them. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, term of respect for these prisoners. You can already see his, his whole attitude seems to be changing at this point. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, what an interesting question for someone to ask after an earthquake wakes him out of a sound sleep. 
What must I do to be saved? But let's remember all the different things that have been going on. He's asking the most important question, of course, that anybody could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? As soon as the fear of physical death is removed, because he sees all of the prisoners still there, I think that he becomes fearful of standing before God and all of his sins and being cast into hell. And I say that because we, we have indications all through this passage that he must have been getting spiritual stimuli. In other words, Paul and his team for days had been preaching and then this demon-possessed slave girl had been declaring, these men are bondservants of the Most High God to proclaim to you the way of salvation. So she had been announcing throughout, <laughs> throughout this entire city that these men were God's servants and they were proclaiming the way of salvation. Of course, Paul and Silas didn't want to be linked with uh, an occultist. And so the, Paul got annoyed and cast out the spirit. But even so, they had been hearing by this girl that these people were God's servants. And their message was God's message of salvation. So no doubt he had heard about that. So that's the first thing. Um, it seems to be that he, uh, he must have come to the point where he knows that he's sinful and lost, and he knows that he needs to be saved. Why else would he say, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He also seen how these men reacted when he roughly took them without giving them a trial, had them beaten with rods and thrown into the inner prison, how they didn't retaliate, they didn't cuss him out, they didn't use profanity, they, they were meek and mild, they were kind, they were gentle, they were non-retaliatory. And then when they're thrown into the inner prison, what they did is they prayed and sang praises to God. And all of these influences, I think, must have been working on this jailer. So that when he's awoke out of a sound sleep by this earthquake, he sees all the, uh, the doors open and all the bands are gone. He, he knows this good, has to be a sign from God that God is on the side of these guys that are in his prison. I think all that is working together to bring him to the point where he knows he needs to be saved. That's the message of salvation that they're preaching is a message he needs to hear. And so he asks the most important question anybody can ever ask, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He had got to the point where he was ready to hear the answer. Now that's the problem, isn't it? When we witness to people, most of the time people aren't at the point where they're ready to hear the answer. And so we're telling them things and their, their heart is just not at the point where they want to hear the answer to that question. But every once in a while, the Lord leads us to that person who he's got ready. And there's that reception, that the, the heart is opened, they embrace the gospel, they're born again. So, Paul's answer, Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. He didn't tell him, join the church, pay your tithes, Become a member, and you'll be saved. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, wait a minute. Can it be that simple? Evidently, it can. Faith. We have three great themes here. Faith, Jesus, and salvation. All linked together in one single verse. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, notice who they are to believe in. The Lord Jesus. Lord means the master, the king. Believe in the one who has authority over you, the one you must submit to. So in believing in the Lord Jesus, there is implied the submission of the will to him as Lord and king. So repentance would also be the flip side of faith. If he has not been living under submission to Jesus up to this point, then to believe in the Lord Jesus means he's repenting from his old way of life, where he lived in non-submission to Jesus, and he's coming under the authority of Jesus Christ in his life. The word to believe, it means to rest, or to cling to, or to trust in another. And he also tells him, in Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, there's different ways Christians have understood that verse. Some take it as a, 
a foolproof promise that if you get saved, your household's going to be saved too. I don't take it that way. I believe he means believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And if your household believes, they'll be saved too. I know lots of very dedicated, faithful Christian people whose households have not become Christians. It's always a sad situation. We, we never like to see that, but it is the truth. It's just a fact. Now, we are going to find that his household later on listens to Paul. They believe what Paul says, and they do get baptized. So it's true that their, his household was converted. It may have been that God gave him a special word about his household. God knew that his household was also going to believe the gospel and be converted. I'm not sure, but I do not take this as a, a, a promise for every Christian that if you get saved, your household, all, all of your family members are also going to be converted. So the jailer's converted. He experiences this great change. Before, he lived for himself. Now he's thinking about God and these prisoners that he has so mistreated. So before he had roughly treated them, he did nothing to apply medicine to their wounds. He didn't give them any bandages. Now he's washing their wounds. Let's take a look at it. Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Notice that? It's not just the jailer, but all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night the very hour that he believes, he takes them and immediately he's baptized, he and all his household, and he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So before, he didn't even ask if these prisoners were hungry. Now he's bringing them into his own house. I mean, this is unheard of for a jailer to take prisoners and take them into his home, and then he's providing food for them. And uh, before he's filled with suicidal fear, now he's rejoicing greatly with his whole household. Before he believed in nothing but what he could see or hear, now he believes in Jesus Christ, an unseen reality, and his whole household believes. Now he professes his faith by getting baptized with his whole household that very hour. So this wonderful change takes place in his life. Look at the good fruit he's already bearing the very first hour of his conversion. Hospitality, obedience to Christ and baptism. He's rejoicing in the Lord. All of these things are fruits of salvation. So I believe that God allowed Paul and Silas to be beaten, to suffer, to be thrown into this dungeon, because this jailer and his household were God's targets. God wanted them into his kingdom. He was going to call them out for his name. And so the way to get them was to send his servants into that jail, which provides a real good lesson for us. It could be that some of the suffering that the Lord allows into your life is because he has a reason. He wants to use you in that suffering to reach someone. He wants someone to see your suffering and see how you respond to that suffering because that's in and of itself is going to be a witness. I can only speak for myself in this, but I do remember, gosh, this might have been around 2008. Our son had died four years previously and Debbie went back, back east where he was to a different funeral. Debbie and Judy flew back. I didn't go on this trip. And Debbie had a conversation with her dad. She, you probably remember this. She's told this many times. But her father asked her, aren't you mad at God? He had been watching us because he thought that we were going to turn away from God because we'd be mad because God somehow allowed this to happen. And we hadn't turned away from the Lord. We kept serving the Lord and believing and trusting him. And, and De Debbie said to her dad, well, how could I be mad at God? If I got mad at God, that's like shooting myself in the foot. He's the only one that can help me. And he can only, he's the only one that can comfort me in my pain and in my suffering. Why would I get mad and turn away from him? He's the only hope I've got. But the wonderful thing is, and around the year, two, about two years later, 
about 2010, we started to see her father turning to Christ in faith. And about the year, he was about 75 years old when he was, he was converted, he was baptized, he believed in Christ, he loved the Lord the last decade of his life. He just passed away last August, but I believe he's in heaven. I think we're going to see him again in glory. But part of his whole spiritual experience was watching a family that had lost someone, and we had gone through the depths of despair and hurt and suffering during that time, but yet the Lord was faithful to keep us. We didn't deny the Lord. We kept walking with him, and somehow... God was using all of that in his life to make some impressions. I just thank God for that. And so I believe he'll, he'll probably going to do the same in your life too. Be careful when you go through times of suffering. Be careful to remember the Lord is, is going to use this. People are watching you. People are watching. What kind of a testimony are you bearing in the midst of your, your pain? So let's draw out some, some truths from this passage. These true, three trophies of grace, Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. First of all, Jesus will build his church. That's what he's doing here. He's sending this missionary team to Philippi to build his church. And the way Jesus builds his church is that he calls them out into his kingdom. The fury of hell will not be able to stop Jesus Christ when he determines to call out his people for his name. Satan cannot stop him. God's sovereign purposes will be accomplished. You can count on it. You can bank on it. The Lord will have his way. The Lord has a people, and they will be made willing in the day of his power. He opens up their hearts to respond to the gospel. So that's the first lesson be encouraged that when you speak the word of the gospel to a friend or a neighbor or a relative or whoever it is, if that person is part of the sovereign purpose of God, they're coming. The Lord is going to bring them by his grace into his kingdom. Secondly, Jesus builds his church as we preach his gospel or speak his gospel, as the case may be. He doesn't do it apart from the gospel. If he did it apart from the gospel, there'd be no reason for him to send Paul and Silas as a missionary team in the first place. He would just call them out by himself. But he's pleased to use his people. He wants to use you to build his church. He wants to use your life and your words and your witness in your friends' or your neighbors' lives. So think about those people that the Lord has providentially brought you into contact with, people that maybe that live around you, that you speak to on a daily basis, Perhaps it's one of those people that God is going to use you to bring that person into his church. And we need to be open and desirous and ready to speak a word of, of grace when the time would come. So he builds his church as we preach his gospel. Thirdly, the gospel can conquer every kind of person. We see that here. A wealthy salesperson with a big house, evidently lots of money, the upper echelon of Roman society. And you've got this poor slave girl who's got nothing because she's the property of somebody else. Both are trophies of grace. And then you've got this middle-class Roman jailer who's hardened, probably calloused, probably a pagan his whole life, and God snatches him as well. So you've got these three different categories of society and God's picking out, drawing out these people and their households, bringing them into his kingdom. So do not despair of anyone that you know of that they're beyond the reach of Christ, right? Sometimes we despair of this person or that person thinking oh, they're never coming. Well, in ourselves, we, that's what we think. They could have said that about Saul of Tarsus, right? He's never coming. This guy's killing Christians. It's his whole life's goal to stamp out the church. He's never going to become a Christian. Well, God made him a trophy of grace. Be encouraged. There's no one beyond the reach of Christ. If God determines to call him, he's coming. He's going to come. So be encouraged with that. It might be a demonized slave girl. It might be a wealthy individual. 
It might be just a, a middle class, ordinary Joe employed by the government. I wonder if you identify with any, either of those three people here in Acts 16. Maybe you identify with Lydia because you've been successful in life. You've got a nice home and car. You live in a nice neighborhood. Your kids go to good schools. But yet, like Lydia, your heart's closed to the gospel. And so there's an emptiness inside that only God can fill. And eventually you realize that even having the things you have, your life is still empty. You still need something. You might identify with her. Or you might identify with this demonized slave girl. Have any of you come out of a, a really dark past? Maybe you were involved in the occult. Or maybe you were enslaved to drugs or alcohol or some kind of sexual perversion. Enslaved in it. Can't, can't get out of it. You don't have the power to break free. Like this girl. She's a slave. Maybe you can identify with her. If you've been set free, rejoice. And like Paul says in Galatians 5.1, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Do not give up your freedom. Or maybe you identify with this jailer. He was a man who understood authority. He was trained to obey authority, to respect it. He's probably a, a retired veteran army officer sent from one place to Philippi to keep peace there. Maybe you can identify with him. Maybe you have a background in, uh, in police or being in, in army or navy or air force or something where you, you understand all about authority like he did. I'm not sure who you might identify with. But the big, the big picture that we take away from this is God's grace is greater than our sin. That God has made us a trophy of grace and one day he's going to show to all the watching universe what the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus have accomplished. So I hope this is a matter for you just to, to praise the Lord this morning if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, come to Christ today. Believe. Ask the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The answer is very easy. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If there's anyone who's not yet a Christian, believe on Jesus this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us the examples that encourage our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would put us in those places and opportunities where we would have an influence. I pray that you'd help us to remember in times of suffering, Lord, to know that you're still working, that you have a plan, that, that this hasn't caught you by surprise at all, Lord, that this is part of the plan and you're using us to, to do something in your, your world. So encourage your people today, Lord, to give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.